Welcome to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. I'm Ashley Neelink, and welcome to our podcast series, Catechism and Sacraments. Today's episode will provide some insight and thoughts on question number six. Today on our panel, we have Andrew Morton, Angela Ayers, and Kathy Davis. So the sixth question in the New City Catechism is, how can we glorify God? And the answer is, we glorify God by enjoying him, loving him, trusting him, and by obeying his will, commands, and law. The Bible passage this question and answer is based off of is Exodus 23, which says, you shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rule, and his commandments always. All right, so panel, our very first question today is, why is it important that we glorify God? And Angela, we're going to start with you. Okay. Well, I think it's important to glorify God because it means that we do what he asks us to do. I think that that's what glorifying God means. So it's important that we obey him. That's doing what he asks us to do. He says that the most important commandment is to love him and love others. I think that it's easy to say to ourselves, I better obey God or he will allow something bad to happen to me. Like he'll get me. But what I wanted to teach my children when they were growing up and what I want to encourage our parents is to remind children that God loves them. He loves them with an everlasting love, no conditions. And this is why we obey. When I was a kid, I certainly didn't obey my parents all the time, but I was a pretty good kid. There were times I disobeyed and got a spanking. I was grounded or I missed out on a privilege. I didn't like those consequences, but I mostly knew that my disobedience made my mom and dad mad and sad, and that hurt me more than the spanking. I really didn't want to disappoint them. I loved them and wanted to please them because my life went much better when I did. When I love and obey and glorify God, I trust that his path, his law, and his word is best for me. When I walk with him, my life is better. I don't obey to earn his affection, but because I want to show him my love, I obey. Walking on this path of obedience not only glorifies him, but reveals his goodness and all that he desires to give me. Thanks, Angela. That's good. Pastor Andrew, what do you have this time? Yeah, when I think of why I should glorify God, two main reasons come to my mind. First, we should glorify God because it would be wrong for us not to. That may sound kind of circular, but if you accept the Christian premise, first of all, that there is a God who is holy, righteous, loving, all-powerful, who created everything, and then you add to this belief the idea that this God made us and made everything, that all that we have and all that we are comes from him, that the very air that I'm breathing right now enters my lungs because he's giving it to me, that the life that I have has been given to me by him and will eventually return to him, that everything I have comes from his hand, then if you accept these two main ideas, it would really be absurd and kind of a jerk move on my part to then go and try to live my life in a totally different direction that is pointing away from the one who is the source of all that I have and of all that I am. 
And the second reason is related to that, because that's what we were made for. Because of who God is and because of how he is the source of all that we have and all that we are, trying to orient our lives in a direction that points away from him is also kind of a jerk move to ourselves. Because now we've put ourselves in the somewhat awkward position of living at odds with our design and our purpose. As St. Augustine is often quoted as saying, and here he's talking to God, he says, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So ironically, all of these things which I have just said are jerk moves to do are exactly what we as human beings have done. So now, as fallen creatures, we still have this innate drive to worship or glorify something, but we express that in all sorts of ways that ultimately fail to satisfy us and fail to bring glory to the one who made us. But I'll go ahead and stop there because I'm starting to drift into matters that are probably going to show up later in another catechism question. Sometimes I think we need to have an episode where we just talk about how all these questions connect. <laughs> because we're always alluding to the ones coming. Um, I, I love that image, though, that, first of all, that it's a jerk move to not glorify God, but also that when we do that, when we are not striving to bring glory to him, we're never going to be satisfied. And I think we feel that in the depths of our souls when we're not striving to glorify him. All right, Kathy? Yeah, so like Andrew said, we've, we do have this drive to worship or glorify something. You know, whether that's an organization or another person or just ourselves, that we're all trying to position something as admirable. And a lot of the ways that we clash with other people are coming from conflicts over what we think should be glorified in the situation. So acknowledging that we glorify God instead of something else is acknowledging that the world doesn't revolve around us. We're not the most important things in our own lives or that created things like other people are also not the most important things in our own lives. Glorifying God instead of other things also gives us a common point to look to as followers of Jesus. So we might disagree and really badly and sharply sometimes on what it looks like to glorify God in a specific situation. But ideally, we're not disagreeing that God's the one we're glorifying. And I, I think that that's just an important point to add to what Andrew and Angela have already said. Yeah, that's really good. And I think that's something that can be so hard in the broken world that we live in to be aware constantly that we're all striving to bring glory to God and that we shouldn't let the different ways we do that divide us. It can be really hard. All right. So in the answer to this question, it specifically talks about enjoying and loving God. So what does that look like for you in your personal life? And how can we point out the ways that we enjoy and love God to our children? Kathy, we'll start with you. Sure. So sometimes I think one of the best things I can do is point out where I struggle with that, if that makes sense. I don't know about you guys, but hauling my kids out the door to anything that they don't want to do, and that does include church, is pretty unfun experience. We get a lot of, I don't want to's, or I never get to choose. And so, you know, sometimes in those moments, just to level with them and say, you know what, some days I don't want to either, but God is more important than getting what I want all the time. And even if this is something that isn't going to make me happy right in this moment, I'm going to do it because it honors God. And you know what? I'm going to let God try to surprise me today and show me something that I wasn't expecting to see. And so, you know, with my kids, we can stop to acknowledge that our feelings are valid, but our feelings don't get to run the show. 
And that's going to help them in the relationships that they're forming now and the relationships that they're going to form later. And that includes their relationship with God. It helps them to know and expect that enjoyment and love are deeper than the feelings that they have on the surface. And that sometimes that enjoyment and love actually involves putting ourselves aside for some period of time because that other person in the relationship is so important to us. Yeah. And I think sometimes our kids don't fully grasp that we're teaching them that or showing them that until they're the parent. And then they look back and they're like, oh, not speaking from personal experience. (laughs) All right, Angela, what do you have for this question? Yeah, I thought that was really good, Kathy. Uh, I think for me, enjoying and loving God does mean obeying him, trusting in him instead of myself. Again, I go back to walking with God down the path he chooses to take me on. This path may not always be easy, maybe strenuous. I might sweat, uh, maybe have mountains to climb. Maybe there'll be valleys, times of really hard situations. Maybe I trip and fall down. But if I stay on it, if I walk with him, I can be assured that I'm safe. He'll be there to encourage me, lend a hand, even pick me up and carry me if necessary. I don't get poison ivy or step on a thorn or go through a bramble bush. I'm on the path. It makes me think of the song that has the words, he walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. That sounds like a path, a narrow way. When we were talking about question five about God's creation, and I mentioned spending time hiking with our kids as the best vacations, here's another way to create conversation with our kids about loving and enjoying God, walking with him. Yeah, that really that really connects us back to the episode from from last week. So absolutely, Pastor Andrew. One of the themes that we see throughout the Bible is a theme that, of God coming to us. He doesn't wait for us to come to Him. He knows that we won't. So instead, He enters into our world. He engages us in ways we can understand and to which we can relate. We see that all over the Bible. We see that in the very act of Him giving us the Bible. We see that in Jesus Christ being born as the incarnate Son of God, yet also fully human. We can also see that in little ways, too. I think for each of us, there are specific areas, moments, settings, and arenas in our lives where God meets us. For some of us, these are shared meeting spaces, like when God meets us through scripture, prayer, worship, and the sacraments. Those tend to be pretty standard for most believers, pretty normal settings to meet with God. I think there are also different sorts of ways that vary from person to person in which God will meet with us, such that we enjoy him in a specific way that's more unique to our particular set of gifts, experiences, perspectives, and responsibilities. So here are a few of those for me. I love and I enjoy God during my private time in scripture, when I get to reorient my heart and mind within his bigger story. I also love and enjoy God when I'm singing or listening to hymns as I'm going about daily tasks. I love and enjoy him when I'm going on a 10-mile walk outside. And sometimes, even when I'm on my morning run, I, I can feel a sense of exhilaration at being alone in his presence, yet out in the middle of this great big world that he created. I also experience great love and joy in the Lord when I exercise my curiosity about the past and I sit under the teaching of great scholars and historians whose books and ideas open up for me a whole new and bigger way of understanding how God has been at work over the course of time and human history. So I love and enjoy God through that. I also love and enjoy God when I'm in the presence of good friends or fellow Christians and we get to encounter God together through his people. 
So I think it's important for us to be able to identify how we love and enjoy God in those specific ways and when we experience that so that we know what nourishes our hearts and our souls. Then how do we point that out to our children? How do we bring them with us on that journey? I think it starts simply by doing these things where our children can see us enjoying God. Because the idea of enjoying God is really abstract and it's hard to explain that to someone else. But if they see you doing it, then that gets their attention. So it's not enough for us to talk to them about how they should enjoy God. It's that our kids should catch us in the act of doing that. When they see us loving and enjoying God in those moments when we don't think anyone else is watching us and we're just enjoying being with the Lord, then that's going to get their attention when they see us delighting in and enjoying God in those ways. And that speaks to them about what a relationship with the Lord could look like. Once they see that that's a priority for us, then that paves the way for us to have conversations with them when we can point out ways that they can participate in that. And I think one of the great ways to try to pass that on is by inviting them into those spaces, settings, and activities where we love and enjoy God, giving them the chance to learn that along with us as we're participating together. I think one of the exciting things about that then is watching them embrace who they are when they're older and figure out what that means for them to glorify God and to enjoy him. That being said, I mean, we, we understand that we are in this world and that it's broken around us. So how does the worldly view of glorifying look different from a view of glorifying that includes trusting and obeying? Because I think there's a really stark difference between those two things. Angela, we're going to start with you on this one. Well, when I think about glorifying from a worldly view, it reminds me of superstars and all the fans that they have. Like some even have bodyguards. Some don't even go to the grocery store for themselves or drive their own car because of so many people that would recognize them and glorify them that they couldn't get their shopping done or they can't get from here to there. Their fans scream when they get physically close to the superstar. They want to touch them with their hands. They want an autograph. They want, want, want. When I contrast this with why I was created to glorify God, I realized that I would never trust and obey LeBron James or Tom Cruise or Taylor Swift. Like, I know that would be foolish because they're going to let me down. They don't keep their promises. They can't keep me safe. They would get tired of me and push me away. And rightly so. I was not created to glorify them or anything in this world. I was created to trust and obey God because he is the only one who is worthy of being glorified. He keeps his promises to protect me, to provide for my needs, and he forgives me and lovingly draws me back to him when I stray off that path, when I fall and trip, and when I get tired. How can I not respond by loving, trusting, and obeying him? It's so interesting to hear you talk about that, though, because I think in scripture we see different people treating God that way with the want, want, want. I, I immediately thought of Moses being like, no, I want to see you. And God being like, okay, like <laughs> you asked right. for it, man. Right. So, I mean, obviously, you, you know the story. I'm not going to dive into all the details, but I think that we can fall into that same tendency of want, 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 and we have to guard against that. Kathy, what about you? So I really like the superstar image, Angela, because- yeah. Going back to Ashley's question, I actually am not sure there's that big of a difference between a worldly view of glorification and a theological view, except the object of it. So, you know, you mentioned you would never trust and obey LeBron James, but how many people 
order their lives around when the next Lakers game is or when the next Cavs game was going to be. How many people buy exactly what Taylor Swift tells them to buy? How many people are at the premiere of a Tom Cruise movie? That we know that what we consume, we end up ordering our lives around if we're not careful. And there's this line between, you know, enjoying something and glorifying it as the wrong object of glory. And that does involve some amount of obedience, even if it's just that we are obeying our own impulses to get more of something. So, you know, I just say more than anything, the way the world sees glorification is it's oriented towards the wrong thing, but not that it didn't include some kind of trust and obedience in the first place. That, that gave me chills, like thinking about how much we obey. I mean, even you think about the rise of social media, you watch an influencer talk about something and you suddenly have to have that because how could your life ever work without it? So, I mean, yeah, we definitely trust and obey far that too many things. That kids anymore is so important that the, that constant barrage of messages is so different than when yeah. we were little that it's so much more to watch for. Yeah, it's crazy. I've already seen that in our oldest and she doesn't, she's not even on anything. It's, yeah, it's wild. All right, Pastor Andrew? Yeah, thank you. Angela, I'm so intrigued by your rock star or superstar analogy in the way that in the Bible, at times we do see people trying to treat God that way. And we do see people trying to treat Jesus that way. And his reaction to that is so interesting. There are cases like the woman who touches his robe because she wants him to heal her and he sees her heart. He, he doesn't necessarily receive her act as something that he encourages others to do. He doesn't say, hey, everybody, come and touch my clothes and you can have healing too. But he meets her where she is and he offers her what she really needs. And then there are other cases when people are trying to treat him like a celebrity. And on the one hand, he always sees their heart and wants to shepherd them. But he also does things that shut down their attempt to turn him into a celebrity. So there's this very complicated way that he does that, wanting to receive their true worship rather than sort of this fan club glorification. And I think this is really intriguing. Now, coming back to the actual question itself, Kathy, I 100% agree with you. I, I think the difference is found chiefly in the object or direction of what we're glorifying rather than necessarily in the absence or presence of trust and obedience or ordering our lives in a certain way. When the object or orientation of our worship does influence us, we see that our worship can take different ways depending on what that object is. So Ashley, if by a worldly view of glorifying, we're talking about an approach that is not ultimately resting in and submitting to the risen Lord Jesus Christ, then that approach will ultimately fail to bring about the rest, joy, and peace that we're looking for. Angela, as you reminded us, if we try to glorify something else, LeBron James, Taylor Swift, they're ultimately going to let us down because they cannot bear the weight of what we are placing on their shoulders. But I'm going to speak to your question, Ashley, from kind of a different angle that's informed by some of the things that we've just been talking about. So if, if we reclaim a definition of worship that does have a root in the idea of obedience and rest, then that can really shine the light on so much of what we are in the business of doing, of a lot that presents itself as honoring and glorifying God. Because if what we're doing isn't actually resting in Christ and obeying Christ, then what we're doing probably isn't actually glorifying him. 
So as Christians, there are lots of things that we slap a Christian label onto and say, this is a Christian way of doing this, or we don't do these things in a worldly way, but we'll do them in a Christian way. But is what we're doing actually pointed toward Christ? Is it actually helping our hearts to rest in Christ? Is it actually in obedience to what Christ has told us to do and who Christ has told us to be? Well, I suspect that there's a lot of stuff that we slap the Christian label onto that isn't actually Christ-centered in that way. So along those lines, there may be things that we consider part of our Christian lives or part of our North American Christian subculture that are actually very worldly when it comes to how they're operating within the framework of our lives and within the posture of our hearts. So I think this idea gives us cause to continually reevaluate our hearts and reevaluate our lives and ask, am I actually resting in Christ through this? Am I actually obeying Christ? Is he actually being exalted here? Is his glory the purpose for what we're doing? If it's not, then that's an opportunity for us to reform our lives, our conduct, the habits of our hearts, according to what actually is aligned with Jesus, rather than our impulse to do this in a worldly way that often places labels on things that are more about us than they are about Jesus. That's, I feel like your answers all kind of collided so I'm going to kind of take a second to like to sum them up into kind of one general statement. When the world pursues someone to glorify, they're ultimately looking for someone to make their life more enjoyable for a moment or to allow them an easier way to accomplish the things that they need out of life. But those people and those things can never give them what they need. And the only person who can give us true rest and true peace in what we're doing is Christ. And so if what we're pursuing isn't wrapped around him, then we're never going to achieve that rest or that peace in life that we're really looking for. Does that kind of sum up what all of you were saying? Absolutely. Yeah. Because I, I felt like you all were saying something similar, but I, I needed to kind of give it one cohesive statement. That's a really good job. I love all of that. All right. So I think I've mentioned this previously on the podcast. I was not raised with a catechism. I was not raised with any of these things. And so the first time I heard, I think it was in Heidelberg and I don't remember exactly how it's worded, but the first time I heard that we're to enjoy God, I was like, what are you talking about? And then I was like, oh, that's kind of beautiful. And over time, this has easily become one of my favorite parts of catechism that we are to enjoy God. John Piper has this excellent quote. I mean, he has lots of them, but this one in particular, where he says, therefore, when the Bible reveals ultimate reality to be a person, it's not affirming anything impossible or even improbable. God is a person. Eternal ultimate reality is a person. And therefore, eternal ultimate joy is the joy of a person, God's joy. And the ultimate joy of his creatures is joy in a person, joy in God. Now that's a lot. So can we, as a panel, flesh this out a little bit? Why is it so crucially important for us to recognize that we're enjoying God, a person? And Angela, we're going to start with you again. Well, I think this is a really important question, Ashley. I think that recognizing this, acknowledging it frequently, and remembering it always helps us to trust and obey him. It's not easy to trust and obey, but knowing that I'm trusting and obeying a person 
someone, someone who loves me and shows me this love daily, I find comfort in that. I often relate God to being a friend. James 2.23 says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. When we teach our children about who God is, we cannot miss the opportunity to teach them that God is a person, a friend. Just like we enjoy spending time with our friends, we enjoy God, his presence when we are walking along that path I've talked about a little bit, our life. That's what, what it is. We're enjoying the presence of a friend. Yeah, I, I have these vivid memories of our five-year-old asking why she couldn't see God. If he's so part of her life, she was maybe three, but why can't I see him? And I was like, I don't even know where to start with you with this one. Right. So yeah, I, I love that image. Kathy, how about you? Yeah, like Angela said, you know, when it's a person, when it's a friend, you don't get to check out. So let, let's take it the other side. If the God that we say we're glorifying is an impersonal God, it gets easier to check out and just go through the motions. You know, you put in your hour a week at church, you do the right things, you don't do the wrong things, and it's all good. A God that's not personal is a means to an end. It's a get out of hell free card. Just behave and everything's going to be okay. But that's not the way relationships work, right? If you've been in a relationship, any kind of relationship, you know that the basic checklist doesn't cut it. In our culture, people don't tend to get married because they want to have their physical or material needs met, right? They want to maintain and deepen an existing emotional connection. Or, you know, if my kids are bathed and dressed and they have enough sleep, that doesn't make me the greatest parent, right? I'm lacking if I attend to those basic physical needs, but I ignore their emotional needs. And more than that, I mean, my kids wouldn't develop well as people. And I think it's like that in our relationships with God, right? As our father, God doesn't just attend to our basic needs. He's not checking a bunch of boxes on a list any more than we should. So I think of like Hosea 6, 6, where God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, or the way that um, it gets put in Eugene Peterson's message paraphrase. I'm after love that lasts. I'm not after more religion. I want you to know God, not go to more prayer meetings. And that in the end is what's most glorifying to God, right? That our hearts are turned towards him, that we want to do good out of a love for him as a personal God, not actions that are ticking boxes off of a checklist. I have, I have nothing to follow up that one with that. Yes, yes, absolutely. Pastor Andrew. I so appreciate this question. And I so appreciate many of the writings that John Piper has given to the church over the years, because he has really zoomed in on this insight that taking the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, that can seem very abstract, but he sees a unity between the two, that glorifying God is enjoying him, and that to enjoy him is to glorify him. And that's not something new to John Piper. If you look at commentaries on the catechism that people were writing in the 1700s and 1800s, they were seeing the same connection centuries ago. So Piper hasn't come up with this idea, but he rightly has presented this idea to us today. Because in a lot of ways, we've wandered away from this. We have made church and religious practice so often about going through the motions you were talking about, Kathy. And it's become about principles and ideas and doing the right thing, saying the right thing, believing the right thing, not doing or saying or believing all of those wrong things over there. And all of those things are true and they all have their place. 
But the reason why they're true and the reason why they have their place is because of the personhood of God, because of who he is, because of his heart and his character. So if we lose that ultimate reality, that centerpiece of the Christian faith as being about this vibrant, literally larger-than-life person who is overflowing with love and whose love and whose very creative being orders and structures every other aspect of our lives, if we take that person out, if we lose sight of the personhood of God, then we're left with a hollow system that feels very lifeless to us. So I don't find it surprising that many who have tasted a sample of the Christian experience in which this focus on the personhood of God has been absent, why many might say, well, there's nothing there for me. Because they might just see, oh, well, here are the rules, or there's this theological system, or there's this code of conduct, this way of life. And all of those things I find exciting and worthwhile and life-giving. But They're exciting and life-giving because of who God is. So by recapturing the personhood of God, we recapture the heart of the Christian faith, which is to know Christ and to make him known. And we need to be continually brought back into that reality because the temptation in our hearts is always to slide away from that and to lose sight of who God is. So I think we need to recapture this, first and foremost, for the well-being of our own souls. And then secondarily, so that we can rightly pass along the faith to our children and to our grandchildren. That what we're passing along isn't just a belief system and it's not just a bunch of questions and answers about truth. We're passing along instead an encounter with God himself. Yeah. And it is amazing how much of that is passed down through generations. So the way we've seen people before us interact with God. And even sometimes the people who come after us, the way they interact with God can really impact the way that we interact with him. So this question and answer weighs really heavy on me as a parent, as a mom. So my kids are roughly, we're almost to another birthday, roughly one, three, and five. And at this stage, obeying their mom or obeying their dad is not something that they see as a gift in any way, right? So if I say, or I'll, I'll use our five-year-old again as an example. If I say, hey, you know, you just change into your pajamas. You need to put your clothes in the laundry basket. Her new thing is, well, that's boring. Super, super fun, super enjoyable. And I wrestle with this idea. They need to obey God. They do. And they need to respect him and they need to honor him. And they need to glorify him. And I'd never want them to see that as an unbearable task, but as a gift. That has been given to them. So with that kind of lens, with that, I don't know, just insight into my current one, three and five-year-olds approach to obedience, what are some ways we can teach our children these things in our everyday lives and our everyday routines? Andrew, we're going to start with you on this one. Thanks, Ashley, for giving us that window into how you experience that struggle. I think a lot of us can probably relate to that. We see a young heart that in many ways has a lot of interest in God, but in a lot of ways, if we look at our kids, we say, yeah, there are some areas where they are very interested in being their own God. And and that's true of all of us. So it becomes very easy for us to feel very profoundly that burden and, and that sense of weightiness. How do we draw our kids into this? How do we bring them along with us on this journey? And I think I would go back to some of the things that I said earlier in our conversation. 
that this is one of those things that is more caught than taught. You can't make someone else love and believe these things, but you can show them what it looks like to be a person who loves and does these things. So I, th I think we do well to live this out in front of our kids to the best of our ability. And when we mess up and when we fail and when there are times when we are clearly not glorifying and enjoying God, to own that and confess that and to repent. Showing our children not just what it looks like to do it right, but what it looks like to do it wrong and to make a U-turn is so important for them to see in us because we don't expect them to get it perfect all the time. So they need to know what it looks like constructively to fall, fail, and get back up and say, okay, let's try this again. I, I think the importance of community is really key as well. We need to remember that loving and enjoying God is often best learned not as individuals, but as part of a family that includes our nuclear families, yes, but even more than that also includes our larger family of faith, that we are engaged in these things in our households, but also that our households are part of a larger faith community where our kids can get to see what it looks like to be discipled, not just by the way that their parents live, but by the way that the people that they see on Sunday mornings live in the way that they can see their friends and their families living this out as well. But I think we also need to recognize where our work stops and the Holy Spirit's work begins. Because ultimately, what we want to see happen is work that only the Holy Spirit can do. As hard as it may seem to pass all of these things on, we can take heart that, hey, if God has found ways to teach us these things, because let's be honest, there was a time, not so many years ago, when maybe our parents were the ones asking these questions. And we were those kids that were maybe showing some signs of interest, but also asking those questions that were hard to answer and demonstrating our fallenness and all of those ways that kids are so good at doing and that we're all so good at doing. But yet, the Lord has acted in our lives to bring us to where we are now. And so we recognize that that's because of his grace. So the same God and the same grace are also at work in the hearts and lives of the kids that we feel burdened for. Resting in that, I think, puts us in the position where we don't feel the burden of having to be Jesus for our kids, where we can step out of the way and let Jesus be Jesus and let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit, and where we can be that older voice to say, hey, I've walked a little bit more of this journey than you have. So come, let's walk this together. I think that in a lot of ways, that's perhaps what our kids need the most from us. Praise the Lord that he is Jesus. <laughs> All right, Kathy. Yeah, so, you know, Andrew kind of said it in a different way, but exactly what I want to say. So I, I have an illustration instead of a list of sort of principles. But, you know, like, I feel like your question here, Ashley, is asking, it, it's like saying, how do I make my kids love broccoli? So, you know, don't get mad that I'm going to compare God to broccoli. I love broccoli. I'd gladly eat a plate of it any day. It's something that over the years I've learned not just to recognize as good for me, but something that I value for its own sake now. But to pass that love and value of broccoli onto my kids so that they see it as a gift worth enjoying, well, that's not actually something I can do. What I can do is I can give them regular encounters with broccoli, right? We can eat it for dinner pretty often. I can add things to the broccoli that make it taste better. We can have a reward system so that they feel good about eating broccoli. 
we could find and cook the broccoli recipes together so that we're all participating as a community. I can eat a lot of broccoli in front of them and talk about how great it is and how good it is for me. And I can share my stories about how I didn't used to like it and now I do. But at the end of the day, the best place that my efforts can get me is to have two kids that eat broccoli. What I can't do is I can't reach into their taste buds and activate the reward circuitry in their brain that says, hey, this stuff is awesome and I want more. You know, if I'm really, really lucky, my kids might do that, but that had nothing to do with me. That part was all between them and their brains. And I think that coming to see God as a gift that we enjoy in our friend, that's, it's like that, right? As parents, there's a lot of great God-oriented resources and routines that we can put in our own lives and in our kids' lives. But like Andrew said, at the end of the day, we're not God. None of those things make us capable of reaching into our kids' heads to bring them to a point where they recognize and they're grateful for what God has done for them. And as a parent, that is terrifying. This is a huge thing that I really want my kids to have, and it's pretty much out of my control. But, you know, it's kind of a relief, too, when I stop and I back away and I think about it because it's not my job. My job is to keep showing up and to keep leading my kids to places that they can meet Jesus. It's to talk about why I love God and to tell them the stories that have woken that love for him. It's to talk through and think through with them how my actions and their actions can honor God. And it's especially to pray for God to wake up their hearts and their minds so that they love him. And then my job is to trust that God's going to do his job. That whether I see it or not, he's going to take those efforts. And let's be honest, I mean, they're pretty half-hearted some days and they're fumbling around in the dark on the rest of them. And he's going to do something in my kids. And the fact that I had nothing to do with that is both humbling and terrifying and relieving. Agreed. And I'm, I'm also grateful that it takes a village, right? And so my kids aren't just looking to me, that there are other people in their lives who are also trying to do the same thing. It's not just on us. Angela? Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. I think it is absolutely not up to us, but it is up to us, like both Pastor Andrew and Kathy have said, to not get weary in putting those opportunities out there. And I can tell you on our panel, as the only one having adult children, you know, you never stop trying to provide those opportunities, you know, inviting your kids to attend concerts with you, inviting, you know, your kids to attend church with you, like you just keep on fighting that good fight for their, their hearts and then leaving the rest of it up to the Holy Spirit. But I think that it's in those small moments that our kids respond, just pointing out the faithfulness of God, thanking God before we eat for the way that he's provided that food, talking about the prayers that he answers, marveling at his creation that he made for us to enjoy. I think we absolutely, as both Kathy and Pastor Andrew have said, we must model this for our kids, talking about it every chance we can get. But I think when we celebrate God, it teaches our children to respect, to honor, and to glorify him. And that's a gift we can give to him, our whole hearts responding in love to him. I love the way that you just kind of twisted my question that maybe we don't need to think about it as much as teaching our kids that it's a gift, but focusing on the gift we're giving him. That's really good. All right, panel, thank you so much for joining us today on this conversation. It's always so good to have you guys. 
For those of you listening, if you have any questions or comments, you can drop them below or you can email us at the church.